Welcome to the Future of Supply Chain, where each episode we'll sit down with entrepreneurs, investors, and industry veterans to discuss innovation, technology, and the most exciting opportunities in trucking and logistics as we build the future of supply chain together. Be sure to head over to podcast.dynamo.vc to keep up to date with our latest content or subscribe on the podcast platform of your choice. Now, let's get into the show. Here's our host, Santosh Sankar. Hey, welcome back to the Future of Supply Chain. I am Santosh Sankar, your host, and today joining me from all the way down the road in Atlanta is Amari Ruff, founder and CEO of Sudo. Hey, Amari, welcome. What's up? How's it going? I am doing well. Uh, it is uh, it is awfully cold here in the south. So for some of my friends up north, uh, it it does get cold down here, but. I, I, I'm quite well. How are you? I'm good. I'm, I'm doing well, you know, um, living the dream in the, in the great world of entrepreneurship, which is great. And I'm also freezing as well. It feels <laughs> like we're in New York these days. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So uh, I have been super stoked to have you on because I think first and foremost, everybody needs to hear the Amari Ruff story. It's super inspiring. So why don't you tell us about yourself? What what has life been like? What was the journey up to starting Sudo? Uh, yeah, well, well, thanks a bunch. Um, you know, uh, definitely been looking forward to jumping on the, the podcast here with the Dynamo team and, um, you know, telling them a little bit about myself and as well as what we're doing at Sudo. But um, definitely, you know, um, as an individual, definitely experienced uh, – a lot of a lot of uh, leaps and bounds per se. A lot of a lot of ups and downs, and things weren't always peaches and cream. You know, I'm originally from New York. Um, was a military brat. You know, so moved around every three to four years. So some cool places that I lived. I lived in Alaska for four years, so that was a lot of fun. Um, I remember sometimes getting off the school bus and you'll see like a bear walking down the street. So that was pretty. Cool. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, yeah, it was cool. I think, you know, being so young, I don't think I was really able to really relish it and take it all in. So I've always told myself I'm going to go back out there and, you know, maybe take a cruise or something like that and just kind of do some exploring and that kind of stuff. So that's one of the things on my bucket list. But spent some time there, um, lived in Korea for a few years when I was younger as well. And that was a great time to experience, um, you know, just a different culture you know, um, in, in Asia, which was really exciting. And then, you know, um, my father retired, and then we ended up uh, moving to um, Atlanta, where I pretty much finished high school. But during that time, parents split, you know, things happened. But, you know, my mother had never worked before. So, you know, when it's, she's got three kids and never supported an entire household, you know, it was really you know, a, a real big change up. So we, we experienced some super, super tough times. Um, we even went homeless <laughs> for a little while. You know, we can look back and I was talking with my mom the other day and we were kind of talking about some things. We can actually laugh at them now because of where we're at today and, and knowing that, you know, um, things were really tough, but we were able to sort of push through by, you know, leaning on each other and, you know, of course, you know, keeping faith and understanding as individuals, um, we can handle any situation as long as we understand that it's temporary. You know, it's one of those things where, you know, didn't panic. You know, we just did what we had to do, you know, to survive. And I give, you know, 
everything back to my mom, you know, for really, you know, buckling down and, you know, taking care of three kids, you know, working multiple jobs. And even when I was in high school, I worked a job while playing football just to pay bills at home. And, you know, we, we made it through. You made it through and, and things are great today. But I think um, those, well, I know that those tough times that, you know, we went through when I was younger definitely, you know, made me who I am today and the entrepreneur that I am today. So, as you know, since I said, things aren't always rosy in, in startups. You know, you run into tough times and things get hard, whether you lose employees or you're running out of money and, you know, the plan never goes as, as expected and the route always changes and you can lose a customer. And But when those hard times come, I've, I've seen, you know, tough times and I know how to, you know, react and keep everybody calm and motivated and inspired and, knowing that, you know, things are going to be okay and this is just a temporary situation and we rely on our execution and we know that we're on the right path and things are going to work out the way we want them to. Yep, that's so right. That's, uh, I'm, yeah, so I'm, I'm a super positive person. You know, I always, uh, you know, as an entrepreneur, you have to be. You have to believe in the crazy things and understand that sky's not the limit. So I'm, I'm definitely one of those individuals. <laughs> uh, so, <laughs> you know, Taking that uh, role of a founder CEO as being the optimist, as the one who sets the vision, how do you think about balancing that with somebody who says, okay, this is how we're going to go about and, and execute on it? Do you have a, a COO or a, a, an operations type that, that balances you at your team? Of course. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We, you you got to have it. And I've learned, this is my third startup, and I learned, you know, early on that um, you, you've got to have somebody who is extremely strong where you're weak, you know, that that's very important. And, you know, on the journey of Sudo, I was able to bring on um, an outstanding individual, uh, Michelangelo Ho, who I actually uh, made a co-founder of Sudo. And he's the, you know, complete opposite of me, you know, uh, product background, um, more strategy execution type of individual, um, but and, and I and I joke around and call him that's my muscle. You know, I'm always smiling and cracking jokes and you know extremely lighthearted. But um, Michelangelo is the one that's going to go go crack the whip and make sure we're getting things done and everybody's kind of rolling in the same direction. But uh, definitely, you know, we wouldn't be where we're at today without you know that right balance of a team where. You've got extreme, you know, optimism and, you know, but on the other side, you've got, you know, strategy, execution that makes that perfect mix and, you know, is attributing to our success today. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That that totally makes sense. Compliments are, are an absolute must uh, in startups. <laughs> but so uh, you've you, you've had a, a background where uh, you overcame significant challenges this is not your first startup, so you also are experienced in what it takes to go from nothing to something. So what mm-hmm. are you guys building down there at Sudo in Atlanta, and, and why trucking? How did you even stumble into the industry? Yeah. Well, dude, we're building, you know, one of the greatest companies in the universe. You know, that's what we're doing. <laughs> <laughs> no, but, but no, uh, we're, we're building a logistics marketplace that, leverages technology to connect small and medium-sized trucking companies to 
corporations that ship goods. So we are working to, you know, letting letting shippers know that transactions can be done with small and medium-sized trucking companies without having a traditional broker in place, you know, without having any human touch. So that's some of the things we're working on down here. And we're housed right on the Georgia Tech campus and have, and we're actually in the Georgia Tech incubator. We've got some extremely strong relationships here with the Georgia Tech supply chain and logistics department, which we've been able to cook up this amazing uh, technology stack. But um, when when I got into trucking, my previous business was um, a telecommunications company, all service-based. We did um, residential and commercial installation service for major cable providers like your Comcast, Charter, Time Warner, and Cox. So we did work for companies like that. And I started that business with uh, one truck, a few hundred bucks, and was able to grow it to over 200 trucks and five offices across the country wow. and exit that business. Yeah. So that was, it was a fun ride. And I owned a lot of assets. I owned a lot of trucks, but you know, they weren't tractor trailers, but they were like Ford Rangers and Nissan Frontiers and, you know, Sprinter vans and things like that. So when I exited, I looked at logistics as a as a low barrier of entry, and my initial goal was to start a trucking company. And I said to myself, well, I had all these other trucks, and I was able to kind of manage them, you know, pretty efficiently and, you know, get maximum utilization out of it. And I was like, well, maybe I can do the same thing, but just do it with tractor trailers. And that was my initial plan. So I got connected with um, a local trucking association here in Atlanta and really started to dig into the industry. But what I found out immediately was that, it was going to be a lot more capital intensive than I had anticipated. And there were a ton of different DOT regulations and just stuff I I just really didn't want to deal with. So um, I did more of a pivot to um, a non-asset-based model, which played more to my strengths, which were, you know, business development and, you know, relationship building. And I I had done business on, you know, at the enterprise level before, so it was nothing for me to have those sort of conversations. So I was like, hey, I'll I, I do this non-asset-based model. And and what I started doing when I dug in there, I seen that, you know, there they were just humans, like, completing these transactions and simple, you know, simple tasks that I knew that technology could handle. And I knew enough about technology to be dangerous. And I was like, hey, like, I think we can build something interesting here because I don't see anything off the shelf that's really solving a problem. Yeah. And that's, you know, we started on the, the path of studio. And, and when we think about technology in, in freight brokerage specifically, we've seen a year where there's been some splashy fundraises uh, amongst some later stage players. But how do you think about that? What should technology be doing to provide an, an an edge or a privilege to a broker, and how are you thinking mm-hmm. about that as the leader at Sudo, in using that to build your moat and and build an enduring company that you can step back in 10, 15 years or so and say this is the best freight brokerage in the world, if not the best company in the world. Yeah, yeah, no, great question. Um, there's been a ton of, you know, dollars thrown at this industry because investors are looking and saying that, yeah, Lee, this thing's $700 billion. You know, like, there's a lot of opportunity out there, and these 
And once they seen how antiquated and fragmented the industry was, you know, they started to throw money at people they felt that could solve that problem. And, you know, that that's where you see these huge fundraisers where, you know, people have been in business, you know, you know, four years and getting billion dollar valuations. I mean, it's crazy. But honestly, you know, here at Sudo, it excites us because, number one, it's validating the market. You know, it's letting the world know that there is activity and opportunity in this industry, number one. It's unsexy, but with technology layered on top, real problems can be solved and real money can be made and lives can be changed in a positive, you know, manner, number one. And so that that pretty much excites us, honestly. And then when you look at, you know, the technology that you could add or develop in this industry and what should it do? I think it's a I think it's a matter of looking at the different tasks that individuals do in a traditional brokerage, whether that's you know um, faxing over rate comms or you know giving directions or reaching out to the receiver just to make sure you know the the times are good, the appointment times are good, or appointment times needs to be changed, or you know just checking in on the driver to make sure that he's on his route and he's not running late and, you know, um, invoicing a customer and just all of those different things that you have to have an army of people doing, or it could be even uh, compliance and all of those things. You look at where we are with technology today, a lot of those things can be done without humans. So what we did was we looked and, you know, from a traditional perspective, because we have, I don't have a, a logistics or freight brokerage background, but I've brought individuals on our team that's been in the industry 10, 15, even 20 years that understand exactly how to build a traditional brokerage, but also at the same time understand, you know, what gaps you could plug in technology to drive that speed and efficiency. Hence the the name Sudo, speed and tempo in Chinese. And that's that's a big reason, you know, why we chose that name, but just because of the efficiencies that we're providing the industry from a technology perspective. So when we're when we're developing now, that's how we're looking at it. Like, okay, we know that you're not gonna be able to, at least today, um, had no human touch. This, yeah. this industry, you know, you're still going to have to have some sort of human touch there, you know, whether that's on the shipper side or the carrier side. But it's more of a human-in-the-loop approach to technology is how we view things. Yeah, I uh, tend to agree where I called the current phase in freight brokerage that we're in a technology-enabled phase rather than an end game where it's entirely technology driven. So totally agree with that. So, uh, you know, as an example, uh, if you were to broker a load on behalf of a shipper, how does the sudo way compare to the, you know, traditional brokerage way of doing so? Because it sounds like in effect, a, a human in your organization can actually, uh, have greater throughput and ultimately over time, perhaps better margins than an incumbent that does not use this type of software. 
Yeah, yeah, that, that's absolutely right. I'm going to do my best at answering that without giving away our algorithm. But, <laughs> but um, so when we look at um, a transaction, um, it could be something as simple as working with the customer in their in their spot, in their spot market. So when when individuals are you know your your traditional incumbents are working with a company a shipper and they're working in that spot market they have sometimes a room full of individuals that are watching that spot market and pricing you know different lanes and those and trying to win that freight you know that's a process for Sudo that you know we have no humans to complete that and we feel confident enough in our pricing algorithm that we are, you know, leveraging, you know, external market data, internal, our own internal market data, uh, taking weather and, you know, seasonality of the industry all into account and coming up with the most optimized price for each particular load and being making sure that at the same time the customer is getting the best price, but our other customer, the carrier, is getting the best price as well and both sides are happy. You know, so that so that's one thing. You know how we look at, and, and I know how we differentiate. You know, from some of the incumbents, and then it's just a matter of like the small things. You know, whether it be you know different check calls or you know invoicing the carriers or the shippers or you know scheduling appointments and things like that. You know, a lot of those things are automated on the Sudo side, and the way we look at it is, I know there's a metric in the industry where you know, one, you know, carrier operations individual can manage about seven, maybe if they're a high-level performer, maybe, you know, 10 to 12 loads per day, you know, completely. Um, with our system, you know, we can three, you know, four, five X that, you know, that production, wow. which, you know, in turn increases, you know, our our margin, you know, as a as a business, which is already extremely thin. So right. that that truly excites us as we're trending towards the true truly um scaling, you know, um, you know, time frame for the business. Yeah. Yeah. So it sounds like it it, it is an assembly of various technologies, but at its core there's a lot of interesting data being consumed uh, applications in and around data science and relevant algorithms um, that ultimately help drive this advantage and, and empower a sudo broker versus a broker who might be sitting here in Chattanooga or wherever with a simple phone and a list of contacts. Um, That's it. Mm -hmm. So the one thing we have not touched on and, you know, we're, we're in this environment where freight rates are still high. Uh, maybe recently uh, we are seeing some level of uh, relief on behalf of shippers or on the part of shippers rather. But you've done this amazing job of enabling and providing access to minority-owned trucking outfits, right? Women, veteran-led businesses, to transact with some of the biggest shippers in the world. What, what sparked that realization that you can tap into this capacity and actually elevate this group that hasn't been a meaningful uh, part of the trucking world till now? 
Yeah, yeah, no, that that's um, that, that's a great question and, and great insight. Um, it, it all came about when I, you know, was really doing a lot of discovery, you know, on the industry and, and really digging in deep to understand how things tick, how things move, who's doing what and who's where, and understanding the size of the market. So when when we looked and we understood, you know, majority of all trucking companies, you know, had six or less trucks. And they made up, you know, that majority was about 90% of the market. And when we dug in deeper into those small and medium-sized trucking companies, we seen that majority of that underserved market were minority women and better-known trucking companies. And, you know, my, you know, my father was in the military. My grandfather was in the military. I've got uncles in the military. I was in the JROTC. And, you know, I've got this, you know, um, you know, warm spot in my heart for veterans and what they do for our country. And I just looked and understanding that, you know, trucking is one of the backbones of of our country, which everything we see, we touch, we eat was most likely moved by a truck and by these guys and, and gals being at the bottom of the totem pole, it just wasn't right. Mm-hmm. And I just looked and, and said, like, you know, what can we do, you know, to bring awareness and bring opportunities, you know, to these groups and we really started to dig in. We got connected with various associations and various uh, different groups, you know, different trucking groups and started to really spread the word. And, and, and that was our go to market, you know, um, strategy saying like, Hey, number one, we're going to, we're going to tailor to um, minority women and better known carriers first, you know, that that's who we're going to the market with first. And that's who we're going to provide opportunities to first. And then from there, that will be our foundation and then we can build off that. And, you know, I can, you know, happily and proudly say today we've been able to accomplish that where not only do we work with minority women and better known trucking companies, but we work with all trucking companies and we've got an extremely large network, you know, of carriers that are all amazing and we're, we're working with them and we're understanding, you know, their goals and aspirations, whether that be to grow from one truck to 10 or if that if they just have five trucks and they want to maximize asset utilization or, you know, begin to get more uh, quality freight opportunities to help drive up their margin or, you know, just get smarter around their own data, we are doing all those things to help them just be better businesses. And at the end of the day, if you can help, you know, other individuals become wealthy, I think you put yourself in a good position to gain wealth as well. Yeah. So that's kind of how we at it and how we move from a diversity perspective. And of course, me being, you know, um, a, a diverse individual myself and Sudu being a minority owned business, that was something that we really took pride in. Yeah. I, I found that to be super interesting and what I think the unique thing to supply chain is and in this case specifically the trucking industry where you operate in is that uh, there is also value of diverse networks right so it's not just Mm. inside an organization or the immediate stakeholders that you deal with it's also the networks that are around you and we are seeing this labor scarcity uh, touch not only trucking, but also warehousing and manufacturing. And these major stakeholders are starting to go to untapped sources for that talent, mm-hmm. women, minorities, certain affinity groups. 
are, are there certain benefits that, that you have seen and that listeners should be aware of when you have these various stakeholders come to the table? Because we, we always talk about the benefits, but would love to hear how you have seen the benefits uh, with your capacity providers or your suppliers uh, bringing those differing perspectives to the table because I think it's definitely plentiful. So I want to shed some light on that. Yeah, yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. Um, you know, there there's a lot of benefits that you can gain as, as a corporation when you're working with these underserved groups, whether that be minority women or veteran-owned trucking companies. Because especially at the enterprise level, a lot of these corporations have diversity initiatives. Mm-hmm. And diverse diverse initiatives doesn't always just mean, you know, minority that 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 fall my uh, women fall in that bucket veterans fall in that bucket as well and if you're able to bring that group to the table and offer those opportunities you know there's there's access to quality freight opportunities and, and new customers and clients and you know it's just a, a plethora of opportunity out there if you're able to home in on these groups and bring them to the table for these shippers because what I've learned and through our discovery and experience in working with, you know, different enterprise customers is that they're really good at tracking the big things, like your JV Hunts and your Swifts and Old Dominions. They know all those guys. They, mm-hmm. they know all of them. And nine times out of ten, they're all in there already contracted. It's just what it is. But what they're not good at is tracking the small things. They don't know about J&J trucking, you know, in Denver with two trucks who doesn't have a website you know, or, or, or ladies trucking group out in, um, out in Chicago with four trucks, you know, and who's taken over the business from their dad and those things. And that's what we pride ourselves on being really good at, you know, tracking the small things. And that's some value add that we bring to our customers because during the times of capacity crunches, we're able to tap, um, well, we're at, we're able to bring, you know, um, capacity to the table that's been untapped and that's what excites our customers but yeah to to anyone out there you know that's listening you know there's there's a lot of opportunities out there on the the private side you know with the different corporations and their diversity initiatives and um even on the public government side there's a ton of opportunity out there yeah you know you'll have you know the the air force wanting to give out you know a billion dollar contract and you know, 20 to 30% of that has to be fulfilled by minority women or veteran-owned traffic companies, yep. you know, or suppliers. And that will put you in the mix of those type of contracts. And getting access to something like that can change your business, especially if you're like the size of us who is just getting to the scale phase and just kind of sure of technology and now ready to bring on additional customers. Like, that could that could extremely change the trajectory of your company in a positive way. So those those are things that we've seen out in the industry by focusing on diversity will definitely get you um, additional opportunities in the market. Yeah, absolutely. The, the, the one thing to note is Sudo is playing this uh, aggregation role uh, as, as I like to call it. And, and we see it across the supply chain where you're able to aggregate a lot of supply and in, in, in aggregate together, 
you are this robust brokerage that shippers are able to interface with. Whereas individually, uh, a lot of the companies that you likely have fulfill your loads are unable, right, to have conversations or deal with the volume that major shippers need to put through the system. But now they can because they're a part of your network and and you enable that. Um, so yeah, exactly. So shifting gears uh, a little bit here, um, you are uh, a uh, a minority founder. Uh, you have likely heard of, been in conversations, read about a lot of the discussions around how founders can build a culture around diversity and internalize it, make it an everyday thing around hiring, talent development, operations, a way of life. What tips do you have? What practical advice have you seen work, not work, and how can people go actually execute on it? Because I'm going to be really blunt here. It's something that this industry has not been great at, and it needs to get better. So what suggestions do you have? No, no, it's funny you say that. I I remember... um, I think it was 2014 or 2015 when I first started the company, I remember going to my first conference, you know, all around supply chain and logistics. And I was so excited. And there were thousands of people there, maybe over 2,000 people there. I could count on one hand how many minority people that I'd seen. And I was like, what have I got myself into? Like, am I going to be able to be successful, you know, in this industry? And it kind of, it, it, it kind of, you know, makes you second guess, like, am I doing the right thing? And, and am I on the right path? But what, I, what I've learned over time is that, you know, a lot of people that look like me don't even really understand and know that supply chain and logistics is out there. Mm-hmm. They know the UPS truck and they see the tractor trailers that they're blowing, you know, their horns had to move out of the way on the highway, but they really don't understand and know how massive and how much opportunity that, you know, this industry truly holds. So what I've done is I've, I'm actually, um, I went to an HBCU, Historical Black College University, and what I've done, you know, when it comes to recruiting, especially here in Atlanta where there's a ton of them, is, you know, get out of your own comfort zone. Like you're used to, let's say if you're here in Atlanta and you're used to going to Georgia State and Georgia Tech to do all your recruiting, like go to Morehouse, go to Clark Atlanta, go to Spelman and look for talent there you know, because that's where you're going to find, you know, diverse individuals. And they may not even understand the industry, but their knowledge and what they've accomplished in school, they could bring some great value, you know, to your organization. So I say for companies out there that are really serious about, you know, diversity, get out of your comfort zone. Don't go back to the same places that you always recruit. Go to different places. Get connected with your 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 local um, inclusive chapter Um, here in in Atlanta, we've got the Georgia minority supplier developmental council, which is a subsidiary of the national minority supplier developmental council. And it's, it's worth the Google. You get out there and you can figure out where your, um, your local chapter is and get connected with them. And they can also help, you know, funnel talent your way and make it off. They would also play a recruiting arm because they'll be excited that there's 
large organizations out there, especially in our industry, looking for, you know, diverse talent. And, and the same for any tech companies out there. The same thing being whispered around tech, there's not a lot of diversity in tech. And you got to, you know, not only just recruit from the Stanford's, the Harvard's, the MIT's, you got to get to the Morehouse, the Spellman, the, the Howard's and the Hamptons and the the the, uh, the Bethune Cookman's and the Florida A and M's, you know, there's, there's talent there as well. I went I went to Bethune Cookman and I think I'm I think I came out okay. You know? <laughs> I would certainly say so. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It. Yeah. It sounds like there are very intentional, foundational actions that you took, and that's what the suggestion is, right? To to go and. Mm-hmm and change the way you source talent to have conversations in groups where minorities tend to aggregate and come together. Mm -hmm. And that's where things start to have an effect inside the organization. Now, when, when you think about culture, uh, you know, where does cultural sensitivity training come into play? And, in, in, an example that I faced recently was uh, there was a founder who, uh, over a five-day period, a uh, small team was not responding to email, and uh, I was looped in and said, hey, you're, you're connected with this founder. Uh, would you be able to sort out how you might have this founder respond to our email? And I took a look and I looked at the calendar and I said, Hey, you know, it's, it's actually a, a holiday for, for this culture. And that's why mm. the founder might not be responding. And it's, it's, it's a really small thing, but it's also a very easy thing to be mindful of. Right. And in a similar fashion, uh, when you engage with different genders, sexual orientations, backgrounds, whether it's culture or race, how does that all come together? Do you have any thoughts on that? Because that's increasingly things that, as leaders, we need to think about and educate our our, our employees in and around. Yeah, yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. And um, we, we live in a world today where, you know, everybody's different, you know. No one's the same, and there's so many different religions, you know, none better than the other, but people just do things different. And I think, you know, what we do is we take time to get to know the individuals that work under our umbrella. You know, it's just a matter of, you know, just understanding, you know, where they come from, who they are, and, you know, especially in a startup environment, giving individuals, you know, the opportunity to be themselves. Mm -hmm. You know, we we push that a lot, you know, internally with our team saying that we we try to drive an environment of innovation where, you know, you you could be on your third week of the job. If you feel that there's a way we could do something different and be more efficient, like, let us know. Let's whiteboard it. Let's talk about it. that's one of the things that um that really excites me about working, you know, with the startup, knowing that, you know, there's there's an open door policy and everybody could really be themselves and it's not a suit and tie kind of environment. It's one of those things like be you and drive that innovation and, you know, you know, present new ideas and and, and, and be exciting and, 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 and feel free to ask questions and and I think when you have that sort of environment, people open up and people are themselves. And 
we would have known if an individual was of a different religion because we would have, you know, they would have talked about, hey, I'm getting excited about X coming up next week. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, um, this is coming up and I'll, I'll be away from my computer from this time to this time because I'm fasting or whatever it is. I think, you know, when you drive, you know, um, that that open, you know, cultural environment that drives innovation and for people to be themselves, I think you learn so much about each individual on your team because no one feels like they're in a box. You know how some people laugh and say like, all right, well, you know, now I got to, you know, put my work voice on or now I got to work, be this person. And then they come home and then they're another person like, no, like we're hiring you to be you because that's what's going to bring value to this business. We're not looking for robots. We're looking for, you know, individuals that can see things differently. And, and that, and that's what I would say. I'm, I'm no specialist on, you know, culture sensitivity, but I think it's just a matter of just giving a crap. You know, when you care about the people on your team, you're going to ask questions about them and you're going to know, you know, what's going on. You're going to know them so well that you're going to understand when they're having a bad day and, and different things like that. So it's just really being aware. And, and of course that gets tougher as the business grows and as a CEO, I may not always be able to touch every single person every single day, but it's a matter of having a leadership team that thinks that same way. Yeah. You know, so if you've got your lieutenants and that are, that are thinking that way and driving that, that same, you know, culture that you've been putting out there since the conception of the business, it's going to continue to wrap around everyone within the organization. So that, that's how I do this. I, I feel like, you know, there's no, you know, perfect sauce. I think every company is a little different in how they like to drive, you know, culture sensitivity within their organization. But I think, you know, at the core of it, you know, it's, it's a matter of just really caring about the that's right that's right and as you stated before we're we're in an industry where the the people are just as important as the technology and and that's what it sounds like you're you're really building sudo in and around you have technology and it amplifies the people better and at some point those folks can get elevated to roles that use their human talents better and better but it comes down to having different diverse sets of people, partners, and stakeholders to really build a great organization. And, you know, supply mm-hmm. chain spans many geographies and, and different types of people. So that's the inherent beauty in and of it. That's that's it, brother. Man, that was good. You didn't take my job. <laughs> <laughs> but w- with that, uh, super, super great having you on here and, and chatting about your background, brokerage, the, the actual building of, of better businesses. So with that, I will say appreciate your time here and have a great one. Thanks, Amari. Cheers. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Santos, for having me. And um, definitely looking forward to uh, visiting Chattanooga again, man. I had a great time there. Yeah, come on down to the scenic city. Cheers. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a five-star review and tell us what you liked. And be sure to head over to podcast.dynamo.vc to keep up to date with our latest content or subscribe on the podcast platform of your choice. Until next time.